0: Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Sustainable Ecommerce commerce podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build your brand for a healthier planet. As always, I'm your host, Giles Smith, and I do love the little veggie garden that we have at home. There's just something super nice about plucking some fresh herbs and greens and eating them moments after harvest. Plus, we haven't been buffeted by lettuceflation since the floods. But I know I'm lucky to live on a big plot. Millions of Aussies simply don't have the opportunity to grow fresh herbs and greens at home until now. My guest today is Dilhan Wickramanayaka, and yes, I did practice that several times, co-founder of Urban Plant Growers. They're helping Aussies with food security, food waste, and reducing the carbon footprint from food miles with their very cool hydroponic indoor plant solutions. As you'll hear in the show, their solutions for fast, water-efficient and highly predictable food growth are changing lives from the big smoke to about as outback as you can get. Santa, if you're listening, I want one. So with that, let's start the show.
1: 3, two, one. Yeah. Dilhan, Wickram welcome to the show! Thanks so much for having me, Giles. Really excited to be on.
0: Ah, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here too. You you guys are building such a super brand with urban plant growers. I love so many things about it. I love the 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 sheer concept of delivering home security, particularly now in an era of you know huge inflation and cost of living crisis and all the rest of it. It just it just makes sense, and I'm I'm really excited to see how you guys travel over the next few years. But before we start to unpack the incredible journey that you've had since since 2018, when you when you guys started up, I would love to hear a little bit more about who you are, Dilhan, and how you guys came to start Urban Plant Grows in the first place.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for having me on your podcast again. Um, I, I love what you do. And I've heard some of your other episodes and Definitely inspiring to hear some of the other people that are out there and, and doing amazing work. Thank you. Um, I guess the origin story of Urban Plant Grow starts with when I met my co-founder, uh, Peter Cole. So we were both at uni at the time. We were doing uh, engineering. So I was doing mechanical, and Peter was doing electrical. And we were both very into the environment and sustainability. Um, we were actually part of a society called UTS Intents. It's a camping society. So you know, every three months they'd go on a big trip and. You'd kind of get out of Sydney um, just before exams and um, get to spend some time in nature. So Peter and I actually met on one of those camps. And, uh, you know, we had we had a bit of a chat, not about hydroponics or anything like that, just a general chat. And then a couple of weeks later, one of our mutual friends was like, hey, Dilhan, did you know Peter's also interested in hydroponics? So at that point, we decided, oh, okay, well, well we're both into this. Let's chat about it. So we had a call. Um, and at that point, you know, Peter had been looking into hydroponics as a way of enabling everyday people who lived in apartment buildings to kind of grow their own food because his sister had recently moved into an apartment building. So he was like, she, she hasn't got a balcony, she, she hasn't got a garden, um, there's no sunlight, she needs a solution. At the same time, I was um, very interested in sustainability from, from all aspects. I had been working in renewable energy and energy efficiency, but was also starting to see that agriculture played a key role in climate change. So um, I was kind of hoping to build large-scale commercial vertical farms. But as soon as I chatted to Peter, I realised, oh, okay, your your idea makes a lot more sense. You know, like there are already massive vertical farms that are starting to be built, and the amount of money that they've got um, is just so so big right now that we probably couldn't compete with anything they're putting out. But there wasn't really anything for a consumer market. So if you wanted to get a product that would help you grow herbs and leafy greens in the comfort of your own home, you'd have to get an American product, which at the time cost about 220 USD um, plus postage from America. So no one from Australia could get anything at an affordable rate that would help them grow their own food. So we were like, okay, well, we can do it for about half the price um let's see Let, let's put our heads together start a business um trial out some products see if there's a demand for this and and see where we end up
0: amazing and and obviously you know whilst uh, the last few years has been an interesting ride for everybody you know we started out having you know jokes around you know uh, the cost of toilet paper and then we moved on and the latest one of course is the cost of lettuce it mm-hmm. makes sense that that we can start growing leafy greens uh, from home when it's when it's ten bucks a head of lettuce, it suddenly makes it very economical to to invest in hydroponics, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And um, you know, these are all things that we saw very early on in the business. Um, I think we were switched on to what was happening in the world and our our sort of thesis in a way was like climate change, increasing urbanization, the increasing global population, the reduction in freshwater availability. Would all lead to um, food security issues in the future, and it was very theoretical at the time. Like it didn't actually feel like there were things that could happen. But then, you know, over the last four years, we've realised that we were we were bang on. Like there are some really crucial issues with the food system that we currently live in, um, and they come out through things like you know ridiculously priced lettuce or um, an overproduction in avocados. These are things that have happened in Australia recently, but they're only going to get worse climate change is going to get even worse that the food system is going to be pushed to the extreme and people will need ways of growing their own food within that whole system so um, unfortunately that that thesis was was true and i think it will get worse but we're hoping that we can give people the equipment they need to grow their own food sustainably in their own home and um, sort of avoid their reliance on supermarkets and, you know, um, larger scale producers.
0: So for for anyone who's not necessarily sunk their brain matter into the topic we're talking about really today, three things that you guys are focused on. One is food waste, one is food miles, and one is food security. That's that's a very big word. I think most people can get their head around food waste. Um, I think probably most people can get their head around uh, food miles, although that might be a little bit more interesting to talk about. What is food security and why is it a big deal for us?
1: Yeah, so food security is having um, consistent, reliable, and affordable access to a healthy, nutritious diet, and it's sort of measured by a, a range of different factors. But one key thing is that Australia isn't actually as food secure as you know you might initially think, um, especially if you go out into rural areas where it might cost like you know five dollars for an apple. Um, there are communities that we've worked with that. You know, they they produce food themselves, but then they sell it off because it's a lot um, it's a better economic outcome for them to sell food to other people rather than use it themselves. Mm. Um, and the result is that they just end up eating like, you know, a lot of sugars or or fats, um, you know, things that aren't necessarily good for them instead of fresh greens. I think in Australia, in such like a, a dry climate, you know, we forget that, you know, like 80% of Australia is is very dry and hard to grow things. It's quite expensive to truck things out across our massive country to to smaller communities and actually get them fresh food
0: yeah and so and so what about the cities though is it is it an issue for us in the cities as well and if so why is that
1: yeah yeah definitely it's still an issue in the cities although the supply chains are like you know suited to to meet the requirements of the mm. city but I guess yeah if you look at stuff like the lettuce thing that happened a couple of months ago that was like sort of a perfect storm of a few things you know one there were floods in Queensland there weren't actually that many lettuce suppliers there's a labor shortage food from overseas, you know, um, what were affected due to the war in Ukraine, um, all these sort of things sort of happened, um, at the same time and it resulted in food getting ridiculously expensive, things like that will continue to happen. But I think the, the big stressing factor will be climate change. You know, like, um, when we started the business in 2018, Australia or New South Wales was in its longest drought in recorded history um and obviously you know now we're in a uh, la nina year our third la nina year in a row and we're going to have <laughs> floods and storms so we're going to the other end of the extreme um yeah. but yeah these things will definitely continue to affect the food system moving forward
0: yeah and so a little bit more context before we start talking about how you guys are driving the incredible success that you're seeing um for anybody that doesn't know what are or what is hydroponics and how is and how is that a great solution for us as you know home based growers
1: yeah sure so um hydroponics itself refer like the word hydroponics refers to growing plants with water so without a soil substrate so instead of you know having a garden where you've got soil and you add water to your plants and they grow you can have the plant roots hang directly into liquid into water um, and they will grow so when you think about uh what it is that plants need from soil The soil provides structure for the plant roots to grow in and actually like, you know, have a solid foundation so the plant can grow upwards. It also has a range of nutrients, um, all the macro and micronutrients required for plant growth. Uh, There are 17 in total. And it also provides like like an aerated um, sort of material. So it provides like little pockets for oxygen to get into so that the plant roots can absorb it all. You can mimic all of that through... um, You know like a growing medium of your own choice plus water and hydroponic nutrient solution so so our sort of tech stack in a way is we have these little rock wool cubes they're about two centimeters by two centimeters and then four centimeters tall and it's sort of like a, a rock that's been heated up to a really high temperature and then spun around like fairy floss and the benefit of that is that you get a super porous material that has thousands of tiny air pockets and um, holds onto water while also having little pockets for air to to kind of sit in. Um, The result is that when you put a seed in, you have like a 97% chance of germination. So it's a very high success rate. Um, When the plant roots start growing out of that rockwool cube, they grow into our hydroponic solution, which is basically just um, water. So anyone can use their tap water. Um, And then we provide a bottle of hydroponic nutrients, and you mix in five mils per liter of water, uh, and then just mix it in. And that is all of the nutrients that your plants need to grow. The the second part that's commonly associated with hydroponics, but isn't technically hydroponics by name, is LED grow lights. Like LED grow lights mimic the wavelength of sun that plants need to grow. Plants primarily just need small sections of light between 400 and 500 nanometers and 600 and 700 nanometers. So to the visible eye, that's um, blue and red. So when you see a hydroponic farm, you know, uh, in, in the news or something like that, and you see the purple light, that's because it's those two wavelengths mixed together. And that is the vast majority of what plants need. Some plants um, might have slightly different requirements, but for things that people are growing in the home, like herbs and leafy greens, you can do that primarily with those two wavelengths of light. Um, and if you're looking at any of our products, you might see, okay, well, those look like white light. That's because the white diodes are like when you actually look at their breakdown of their spectrum, it's primarily blue, blue light. Um, And then there's red diodes that are scattered in throughout the light panels that we have. So I guess to summarize it, um, hydroponics is kind of a a mixture of things. So it's using uh, growing plants in water, using a hydroponic liquid solution um, and a growing medium to hold the plant itself. And then it's using LED grow lights to give plants uh, artificial light that mimics the sun.
0: Okay, perfect. I think that that's uh, that gives a great rundown. And of course, at the end of the show, we'll talk about where people can go and find out more about all this stuff, and kind of put some pictures and and a bit more description behind behind that. But it's great to see this stuff being used. I remember, you know, I remember looking into hydroponics about I don't know, maybe eight eight nine years ago because one of my one of my old mentors was was just starting to get into it out of the us and like you said it's all out of the us at the time and and i remember thinking at the time oh i just thought you used to grow you know cannabis with that sort of stuff you know I, like i have a hydroponic thing under the house and do you know do something dodgy but of course we're talking about food we're talking about um herbs and and you know all that sort of leafy green stuff here and, and bringing bringing food growth into the house which is which is a different thing entirely which is very very cool
1: i guess just on that one really quickly it is interesting how strong that stereotype is. It gets to the point where when we'll mention hydroponics, people will obviously think about growing cannabis, but it's so strongly ingrained that people don't realize that you can grow cannabis in soil. In fact, yeah. like in Australia, it's, it's a plant that grows really well in in the natural conditions that we have, you know, dry conditions without much water. So as soon as you say, well, actually like you can just grow it in soil. It's just that hydroponics makes it grow so much better. Like something clinks in their brain where they're like whoa I never considered that you know that's how strong the association is but um our brand our whole idea is you know our products are meant to be accessible for everyone and when your grandma starts growing hydroponic basil it stops being like a drug thing and it starts being um, (laughs) an everyday person thing
0: absolutely absolutely I love it and I didn't I mean I guess I guess I just never even considered how strong the association was it just something that was sparked I remember having that very same thought I know nearly t- nearly a decade ago when I first heard about it, and so it's interesting that you say that that, that kind of um, perception still exists very much alive and well today. Still, uh, so interesting. So, where did you start? What was the first product you brought, and how did you get that first thing to market?
1: Yeah, so the first product we we worked with was um, sort of like the size of a toaster. You could grow two plants at the same time. It had a one liter water reservoir and an LED grow light. Um, it had a built in like uh, like water float that. You know, told you when the water was empty. The idea at the time was why, um, why design something from scratch? Spend twenty thousand dollars, you know, making plastic injection molds, um, and then maybe like another fifty, sixty thousand dollars on doing an initial manufacturing run. We found a product that already existed overseas, right. and we just brought it to Australia, and we became sort of like the the suppliers for that. We had started the company in June two thousand and eighteen. So for us, it took like, you know, three, four months to sort of set everything up and build a website, figure out how the products worked, make sure that we've provided everyone with the best possible like nutrients and seeds and stuff. Just kind of, you know, all all the growing pains with the business, like figuring out what is our actual business? You know, what what are we doing? What are we hoping to sell? And then I guess it all started to come together by Christmas. So that first year in December, we made um, $10,000 worth of sales that Christmas. Um, which kind of blew us away. You know, we were like, oh, wow. Okay. People are actually interested in this. So come January, Peter and I sat down and we had a discussion and we were like, okay, well, what do we actually want to do with this business? Like, what do we want to, what are our goals? And we sort of decided on a few things. One was that, okay, this is definitely something people want. People want to be able to grow their own food at home. And hydroponics is definitely, um, there's a spot in the market for it, but people need a range of products. So instead of just having, you know, our one toaster sized smart garden, we thought, okay, maybe people need ones that are the size of a milk crate. Maybe people need ones that don't have the the hydroponic water bit, but just have the grow light itself so that they can grow their own, like, you know, seedlings and propagations and then plant them out into their garden later on if they want, because um, that's that's an area that a lot of people typically have problems with when gardening. So we decided, all right, let's let's expand our range, let's see what else we can manufacture um, and and kind of take from there. And at that point we started building relationships with a whole heap of manufacturers and trying to get things done to to kind of build out our range. And that sort of, you know, that sort of thinking uh, has over time gotten us to where we are now where we've got, you know, maybe like 13 major main products that we service. um, And then we provide all the accessories for it. So we provide like, you know, seeds growing mediums nutrients uh, a whole heap of nutrients testing meters for you know ph and and nutrients and then like replacement parts and and basically everything you need to service your product for as long as you can
0: i noticed you've got like propagation tools and kits and all, all sorts of bits like that which i guess are useful for people like me who have an exterior garden anyway i'm quite lucky i've got a whole heap of, I've got a whole um, vegetable garden down the hill here and all sorts of stuff. So, but that kind of stuff will be useful for me. But then I guess, I mean, when I look at, when I first go to your store, I definitely see the indoor garden as being the primary thing. And so who do you, who do you perceive to be your primary audience? Who's your core, who's your core customer?
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, it's a good question and it's sort of changed over time. Like at the beginning, I was doing this business because of sustainability. I was convinced that hydroponics was A better way of growing food, just you know, it uses 95% less water, up to 90% less fertilizer, less space, less time. It can be done indoors, it can be stacked vertically. Um, There's all these benefits to it. So, I was assuming that the reason people were buying our kits were sustainability. Um, After about a year, I started realizing the main driver was convenience, um, having things within their own home, Mm -hmm. and then sort of sustainability might be like a second or third option that they'd think about, you know, after is this convenient? Is this like fresh food? So we sort of tailored our business a lot towards that.
0: So that's interesting because like convenience is an interesting one especially when you take the context of uh, the shifting sands of the times of where we are, right? I mean, three years ago, nobody could get to the shops or people didn't want to go to the shops. And so conv- I could see convenience being a key driver there. I want fresh veg. I don't want to go to the shops because I don't want to get COVID. So I'm going to try and grow it at home. I get that. Now, with the cost of living crisis in full swing and getting worse month by month, I wonder if actually they see a long-term play now. There's, there's a, you know, whereas I, I mean, let's say let's say it costs a thousand dollars or whatever it is. Uh, I, I forget how much they are, the, the, you know, the really big, big units you've got where you can, in fact, grow, you know, food at a reasonable pace to, to, to suit a family of four or, or five, say, for example. So it's a fair amount of cash investment to to get that going. But I'm wondering if now, with that being a, an increasing issue, people are starting to see return on investment in terms of growing food as as a as a key driver for them
1: yeah I think people are definitely starting to see roi as as a key feature um and for us, we sort of feel like if we're just selling a product which is you know a design feature rather than a functional thing, um then we won't be sustainable as a business. you know we need to make yeah. sure that people can get a payback from our product and we always try to make that payback under a year. Mm. Um, and when you think about it, there aren't many things in your home that actually save you money like yeah. people might have solar, which typically has a payback of you know three to five years depending on what what region you live in. But I can't think of many other things in the home that actively save you money. Whereas if you're growing your own food, you can see, okay, well, a head of lettuce, uh, a bunch of basil costs this much and I can grow this much in a year. So yeah, yeah I guess value-wise, we always try to keep our products, um, giving people a return within one year. Um, in terms of our customer, going back to that one. So yeah, i had initially thought it was people who are very sustainable living in apartments, living in urban areas, which is why we named the company Urban Plant Growers. Um, Because we were like, well, these are urban people. They're they're people who live in apartments. Um, But over time, we realized that our products actually actually reach a very diverse range of people in a whole heap of regions. So instead of it being, you know, maybe a a 20 to 35-year-old in a city apartment dweller who's conscious about sustainability, we started realizing, well, actually, there are elderly people who use our products because gardening outdoors in soil is too strenuous. Whereas our products are maximum, like, you know, you can get some of our products that are like a kilo. Mm. Um, And if you can carry a kilo and then carry a jug of water, you can garden. So we've seen customers who, you know, use our products because they are growing indoors and they haven't been able to grow stuff outdoors. Um, We also see customers who live on farms using our product. So a a particular customer of mine lives in far North Queensland where, um, you know, if you were to grow seedlings outdoors, it could just be wiped out by, by a storm all in one go. So she grows her seedlings in our products and then she plants them outside into the garden. We've also got a customer in Kalgoorlie, the largest open-cut super mine in the world. Um, and if you look at a map of Kalgoorlie, it's all just completely dry. It's desert. The soil is red. There's You can't grow anything in there because it's so dry. So it makes sense in a climate like that to be able to use hydroponics, which is a technology using 95% less water to grow your food. Um, and you get much fresher food than you would get if you were to, to go to the supermarket to try to get the same thing. So we've realized that um, across a whole range of geographies and demographics, uh, there are a few target customers that we hit. And those are home chefs, sustainability enthusiasts, and gardening hobbyists. So people who just like to like gardening um, as a hobby itself. So uh, it's quite broad reaching and there's a lot of different people that we speak to, which obviously gets a bit difficult sometimes when they're trying to position ourselves and figure out what our messaging is. Yeah. Um, But it's it's really a technology that has applications that are very far reaching.
0: It is interesting because one of the things that I I do with my coaching clients is always try to get them to focus down on one core avatar, which will be well enough to find that all of your narrative speaks to that person and then the the sort of the halo avatars kind of get sucked in along the way because they believe enough of what's being said but then while you started out there talking about demographics you know age location gender occupation actually what you guys have come to is a much more useful avatar definition based on the problem set and so your avatars are based around one of two problems that they that they typically share that. And the first, the first one is the ability to grow plants reliably for whatever reason, whatever they, whatever it is that's causing them to want to do that. And then the second one is having easy, affordable access to fresh, healthy food, no matter where they live. And I, I really think that's very, very powerful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank Yeah. I think it is as well. Um, yeah. It's sort of like alluding to sustainability while also kind of providing an optimistic vision for what the future could be like. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people who I think to kind of distill how we how we walk the the line with all those different demographics, we would say that we want to be the company to help people grow food indoors full stop. Mm. You know, like the it, it's not just hydroponics for outdoors, you know, there's there's plenty of things that people can do with a garden, but we want to help people who want to grow food indoors do that. Um, yeah, and and sorry, just to also call out, like our products, we we also sell them to people who use them for indoor plants and and orchids and um you know growing seedlings and stuff like that. So while it is a large portion food production, there's also a lot of people who use our products for for their hobbies.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It makes complete sense. So. You started out and I think you, you mentioned you had something like four hundred K in the first year and it doubled you, you at least doubled your your revenue every year since then. What do you put down to that wonderful growth rate? What do you what are you guys doing that's actually really, really super working for you?
1: Yeah, I think it it's always hard to put it down to just one thing. Um I think it's a lot of things done well, which, you know, in combination, they result in a good outcome. But I think if you could distill it, you know, it's just focus on the customer and focus on value. So as soon as you start getting products out there and um, getting customer feedback, you have to figure out ways to fix their problems, make sure they're getting the most out of it, make sure it's actually solving a problem for them. So for example, um, you know, the nutrients that we initially sold with our products are completely different to the ones we sell now, because we've sort of realized, okay, well, we can work with, a company get custom nutrients formulated that specifically grow herbs and leafy greens perfectly. And then we can make it like a one part solution. So people only have to add like five mils and just give it a stir and it'll work. Same with like seeds. So we make sure we get the freshest, best seeds from seed suppliers in Australia so that when people grow, it's going to instantly work and they don't have to worry about, you know, going to the supermarket to get stuff themselves. And then a large part of it is education. So instead of just giving them a kit and being like, all right, here you go, follow the steps, figure it out. We try to explain quite thoroughly in our instructions, how hydroponics works and how people should be thinking about gardening. So get them thinking in like a troubleshooting mindset. So instead of being like, oh, it's not working, like what's going on, just be like, wait, wait. I've read this before. It doesn't have enough nutrients or, you know, the, the temperature in the room is too cold. Let me move it to another room. So I think all of those things, you know, it's just that constant focus on the customer will inevitably get you in a good spot. And if you just keep doing that, you know, you can keep growing the business quite sustainably. Um, but then I also think a large part of it has been identifying problems that they don't necessarily, customers don't necessarily know that they have yet. Having a bit of vision and being like, well, this is where I think things are going. Um, this is what we're going to create. So an example of that is a new product we've got coming out um, over the next month. It'll enable people to grow herbs, leafy greens, indoor plants, um, you know, even, even use aquaponics, which is fish tanks with, um, with plants growing out of them. Um, all in the comfort of their own home in a very stylishly designed product that sort of just fits in anyone's living room. Like it's designed, so it's quite quite a standard um, you know, thing that works well with most homes. Having that vision, like no one asked for it. No one said, this is what I want. Um, but it's something we've sort of taken a bit of a gamble on and said, all right, I reckon when people see this, they'll want it. And I reckon it'll fix a problem which people have, which is just there's not enough light indoors and we need probably a large shelf product that has grow lights coming out of it to be able to grow all the things that we like to grow outdoors without sunlight.
0: Yeah, that listening to the customers pieces is critical, isn't it? I mean, so what sort of feedback mechanism do you have with your customers? And, you know, how, how do you actually get that, that feedback from them? What are you doing?
1: Yeah, so we've got the typical ones, which are, you know, email marketing and like a review sort of system. So, you know, someone will buy a product and based off what product they got, we will send them a review a certain number of days. So um, for example, if you're buying one of our products that grow like lettuce or basil, um, the typical lifespan or the typical time until lettuce or basil hits maturity can be between, you know, five to eight weeks. So maybe at around the eight week point, we'll be like, okay, you've probably, you know, gone through a whole life cycle of planting. Um, Here's a message, send us a review, tell us what your feedback was. So that's a very obvious way of doing it. Mm. Um, The other one is we've got like a a very strong, like survey um, system set up. So, Every like quarter, we'll randomly select a bunch of customers, shoot them a message and be like, hey, are you okay doing a survey? And then we'll kind of go through this detailed survey to find um, a bunch of information out about them. And usually there'll be something where, you know, most of the things you expect, but then there'll be a pain point that you never really thought about that a customer mentioned. And you're like, well, that's a really good idea. And then other than that, we've we've got a very methodical customer service system. So every single query that comes in gets tagged with like, You know, four or five different tags, depending on where they are, what product they bought, what it relates to, whether it's a product fault or it's a product help query. And then we kind of use that to feed back to the team. So we either say, okay, like we're getting a lot of queries about this. Um, Maybe there's a problem there or maybe there's an opportunity there. How do we sort of action it? So there's quite a few things that we do um, to kind of get that feedback. But at the end of the day, I think most of our feedback probably comes from from customer service.
0: So what tools are you using there? You mentioned a couple of reviews and, and obviously the customer service tagging. What tools are you using for that?
1: Yeah, so... Uh... Customer service, we use a platform called Reamaze. Um, they're basically like Zendesk, but specifically for e-commerce. So they've got a lot of good integrations.
0: I've never heard of that one. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, they're they're really good. I'd highly recommend it. It's it's much better than Zendesk, and uh, yeah, they've got a lot of very intelligent automation features that they've released. And you know, if you put the time in and invest and kind of um, think about how you want all your processes and your structures to work. Then so it's actually very useful. Right. For the reviews, we kind of use a Shopify app called Stamped.io, okay. which is quite simple. Um, it's sort of just plug and play in a way. And then for the surveys, which we send out and, and ask, um, we we use Microsoft Forms and generally just call people up and, and try to have a conversation. And. I think, you know, you have a human conversation and you kind of figure out a lot about how you can help people.
0: That last point you raised, I think, is a really important one. And, and it's something that I think is uh, a massively underutilized source of information, just simply talking to people. It sounds yeah. it sounds obvious when you sort of look at it that way. But I think in, e- in e-commerce particularly, I think we get so hung up on just arm's length technology where we don't speak to people. We have, you know, perhaps some VAs handling um, handling customer service, we're using these third-party tools to automate stuff where you've know, got websites, we've got, you know, um, uh, 3PLs and all the rest of it yeah. where we we never really interact directly with our customers in e-commerce. When that's the case, the value of simply, specifically as the founder, I think, of, you know, reaching out to somebody and calling them and saying, oh, hey, I'm I'm Dilhan. I'm one of the founders here at UPG. Just wanted to find out what you thought about our products, you know, and, and having a conversation, is a very, very powerful medium. And if you can do that, you know, maybe once a week, twice a week with a few customers and all the way through, you you start to build up as the founder, this picture of perception of your products, perception of your brand and problems and challenges that the customers are having, which keeps you connected. And like you say, when when ultimately the success of the business is being driven by acknowledgement of what your customers need and where the, and where their needs, how their needs are changing, that's so, so important, isn't it? To keep that direct connection.
1: Yeah, definitely. You're right. Like as an e-commerce business, you can sometimes just see orders coming through and not necessarily see the person behind the order. But it is really good to have interfaces with the customer. I think our business does that quite well. Like we've compared to other e-commerce businesses that might use, you know, like a virtual assistant um, working out of the Philippines. We actually have like, you know, a customer service person on our team full time, Mm. making sure that people have the best possible outcomes. Um, I think we, as a team, we generally go the extra mile. So for example, like there will be times where something goes wrong with a product and someone from our team will just like, if they're in Sydney, we'll just sort of drive out, meet them, replace, you know, fix whatever they've got that's going wrong and have a chat to them and kind of figure out, you know, why they're interested in growing, like what they like doing, all of that sort of stuff. Um, It is nice also having a touch point, like customers can pick up their orders from our warehouse in Marrickville. When they come in, it's always good to just be like, oh, so what are you growing? And then just, you know, have a chat, see what's going on. There are some people who just use our products in like ways we never imagined. Um, and it's just amazing to see the the creativity, you know, we've, we've had people use our products to grow carnivorous plants, you know, never saw that coming, but it, it's quite cool. And it, it makes a lot of sense when, when you think about it.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, uh, it's, it's great that you've got that physical location where people can come and, and, and you can, and you can have that grounded discussion though. That's obviously hard to scale out and talking of scaling, you, you've gone to New Zealand, you've gone to, to the UK, what does that process look like? Cause some of your stuff quite big, you know, you, you can't just air freight it everywhere. So- so how have, you, how have you managed to scale that?
1: Yeah. So I guess in scaling out to New Zealand and the UK, they sort of happened in different ways. New Zealand was quite easy. Obviously, it's, it's very close. So we kind of just made a separate store and then we started, okay. um, you know, we, switched, we connected it to all the advertising stuff. We used our warehouse in Sydney to send all our stock out there. So um, New Zealand is sort of a bit of a, a shell, perhaps, and all of our orders just go through that New Zealand business from our Sydney warehouse. So, like New Zealand is quite easy in that way.
0: But you still felt the need to give us a separate uh, domain, a separate store.
1: Yeah, it, it just makes things a lot easier to separate them. Like, for example, New Zealand has very strict biosecurity laws. Mm-hmm. So some of our seeds we can't send over um, our nutrients, right. need to be, like, you know, super strictly labeled. Uh, Same with our growing mediums. Everything needs to be like very, very clearly um, sort of labeled or not sold at all. So, you know, instead of saying, all right, well, this product, like, let's look out for it. And then if someone buys it in New Zealand, we won't send it out. We'll just make a website for New Zealand where... The only products that are on that website are the ones that we know we can sell there. So that's sort of, yeah, I guess working through all of those custom things is, is quite a logistical issue.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I guess that was one of the things I hadn't necessarily thought about in terms of the you know, biosecurity laws, but you're right, you're sending essentially seeds and whatever else, which obviously is going to be an issue. So do you keep stock and inventory actually in New Zealand or are you sending everything out from Marrickville?
1: No, there's no stock or inventory in New Zealand. Right. Um, and I want to avoid that for as long as possible. Yeah. You know, I think... A typical mistake is, you know, you're like, we'll go from one warehouse to two warehouses and we'll get better postage times and it'll be closer to people. Um, But I think, you know, having two warehouses, it's not double the work. It's like four times the work, Um, especially having that in New Zealand. I think it would be really tough for us to, you know, even to manage and to have to like, you know, fly over there every time something goes wrong or, you know, if you hire the wrong people and stuff like that and suddenly you end up with a problem that is in a different country and not easy to solve. I think you can start creating a lot of headaches for yourself.
0: Yeah, not to mention the duplication of inventory cost and cash flow and all the rest of it that goes into it. So, so then, but does that does that same principle apply to the UK? Because that's a different ballpark again.
1: No, yeah. So with the UK, it worked out slightly differently. So we had, uh, I guess, initially it was twenty twenty. Towards the end, we had a mentor of ours who was living in the UK, and she sort of just said, "Hey, like this place is perfect for your products. You really need to get here." Um, and we were like, mm, it's a lot of work. Like, we've got a lot of other things to do. Um, and then she was like, no, no, you really should. So we are like, okay, we'll give it a crack. Um, we sent out some stock directly from our manufacturer to her house. Um, and then over the next three months, like, she packed all the orders for us. She sent them to customers. She, um, yeah, she did, like, all of the legwork. Like, she, she sourced seed suppliers and um, a nutrient supplier locally, that that we can do all that stuff through. And then I guess over that period, we sort of realized, okay, there's a market for this in the UK as well. And then over the next year, we sort of figured out, all right, how can we scale this up? So we found a partner in the UK, a fulfillment um, at 3PL that does all of our fulfillment um, and our storage. And we just said, okay, well, we want to manage the sales and the marketing and the customer experience from Australia but uh, we'll do the actual fulfillment from the UK. And obviously that makes sense. You know, like Mm. people don't want to be waiting like weeks to get stuff from Australia. They want to get it, you know, the next day. So our sort of plan with the UK and what we're doing now is we will get the things directly, the the actual like electrical products directly from our manufacturer in China. Um, And then we'll get the kind of accessories, seeds, nutrients, growing mediums, you know, manuals and stuff like that from um, suppliers in the UK and just do a bit of assembly um, just before we send it out to customers. What a
0: journey. What a journey. There's a lot. (laughs) And so what's next? What's on the horizon coming up for UPG? What do you see happening over the next sort of 12 to 24 months?
1: Yeah. So um, where I guess the key feature is we're doing a lot of product development. So we've got a bunch of new products coming out. So uh, we're working on a aquaponic product. We're working on that large indoor grow shelf style product that, you know, it's going to come out this month. Um, We're working on a product for vegetables. So instead of just being able to grow herbs and leafy greens, we want something that can, you know, give people tomatoes and chilies and capsicums, things that everyone always says, you know, I want to be able to grow these things because it's emotional. You know, you you see a tomato growing and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. But also at the same time, you know, uh, for every one kilo of tomato on a supermarket, there's like 430 grams worth of carbon emissions from the transport of that tomato alone in Australia. So that's the average. So you think about like, you buy a tomato, you've got a kilo of tomato, and then 430 grams of carbon as a result of that tomato just being moved from farm to to the store. Yeah. So yeah, we see a big opportunity there in sort of reducing um, carbon mileage. I think a big part of our redevelopment will be sustainable design. So we're currently working with a company that does you know life cycle analysis and sustainable manufacturing advisory services. And our whole sort of scope is going to be, okay, we're redesigning a lot of our products to fit within this new style and um, vision for the brand. How do we do that in a sustainable way? Yeah, and basically the features will be, all right, is it more economical to manufacture certain things in Australia, close to our warehouse, close to our customers compared to China, you know, and getting them shipped down to here? Or is it better to kind of continue what we're currently doing? Mm. I'm not exactly sure until we do the life cycle analysis, but I think a lot of what we'll be doing will be, you know, using recycled plastic for our plastic basins, potentially trying to bring a lot of the like injection molding to Sydney where our warehouse is. And then I think the only things that we'll end up getting from China might be the actual electronics themselves, which you just can't really get from Sydney. Yeah, correct. So if we do that, it'll be quite, quite a good impact to you know use recycled plastic manufacture in sydney and send it directly to our customers from our warehouse here i guess other than that like sustainability wise like all of our postage in australia is carbon neutral at the moment so we've got that through um through our suppliers and we pay you know offsets and then sort of kind of working on our warehouse operations and stuff to make sure that we're emitting as little as possible so that one was a lot easier because i'm like my background being in energy efficiency i was like oh a warehouse is very easy to optimize when you've literally, you know, optimized massive commercial buildings. For those people
0: that don't have that background, give us give us some top tips about how to, if you if you're someone that's operating your own warehouse or your own distro center, what what, mm. what are the top three things that you would look at to to optimize that?
1: Yeah, I guess it, it's all they're, they're all fundamentals. Like you got to think about how a space is used and then um what like what the operation of that space is like. So for example in the warehouse downstairs, between nine to five it will literally like there'll always be someone there. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to have LED lights that have you know integrated dimmable sensors or like motion sensors because you know 9 to 5 there will be someone there. So actually dimmable sensors probably make sense, the motion sensors don't make sense. So just thinking about how that space is used. Obviously doing all the upgrades like you know everyone knows you go from from fluoros to LEDs and you get massive savings. You usually pay it back within a year. So stuff like that, you know, we did that as soon as we moved into this new warehouse. Thinking about HVAC is very important. So HVAC is usually where people spend most of their energy. So just using efficient heat pumps and not using the the aircon when you don't need it and kind of building in those procedures. Um, for work, like all of the computers and stuff like that, They they've got the built-in sleep timers and stuff like that um we do try to have like a shut off as well so like downstairs the circuit that all of these computers um in our office are on is all on like one switch so so when you leave the office you can just shut that off and like you don't have i think they call it a vampire load where you just have like a small trickle of energy because all your appliances are on standby you can just reduce that up altogether but you know again the other thing that warehousing always comes to is how close are you to your customers? And we've we've paid a premium to be in, in Marrickville, which is quite close to the city and central to um you know Sydney and, and the customer base. So in doing that, like a lot of our postage miles have been reduced. So um yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of fundamentals. The other one is obviously waste to think about. Um just make sure you do like split stream recycling and you're actually like teaching your employees how to how to recycle properly because it's surprisingly um, you know, surprisingly, very few people know how to recycle properly. And uh, yeah, thinking about the streams that don't commonly exist. So for example, for us, we have soft plastics. We don't get that much, but, but you know, occasionally there'll be a supplier that just sends everything in a bunch of bubble wrap or something like that. Um, and we basically just compact it down as much as possible. And then we work with a company who sort of melts it down and turns it into upcycled appliances and furniture. So my understanding is they'll turn it into like community benches and, and tables and stuff like that. Like, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen, but there'll be like plastic tables, like just out in a park or something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And fencing and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Dilhan, thank you so much. Where can people get their hands on some of these incredible hydroponic uh, machinery?
1: Yep. So all of our products are available on our website, Um So if you go there, you can check out our full range um, you can ask us any questions through our chat bot. We've got plenty of things that you know we can help you out with and give you any recommendations if you need any.
0: Fantastic. Now now I now I have to immediately ask what chatbot are you using? Like what have you done there? What have you built?
1: Yeah, so the chatbot is through the app that I mentioned, the Reamaze app. Okay. Um, and it is it's quite intelligent. You just have to train it a little bit. Like um, you know, by default it'll pick up FAQs and um, some templates that you might have, but you can Specifically, design it to say, like, all right, if someone types in grow light or hydroponic basin, then you can pop up and show the product or you can show the articles related to it.
0: Fascinating. I love all the geeky stuff that helps us do better for our customers. Uh, So, thank you so much for sharing that story, Dilhan. Fascinating uh, uh, product space that you're in, fascinating set of challenges that you're looking, you guys are looking to solve, and are really. I'm excited to see how you take this over the next couple of years with your your continued product expansion. So thanks very much for sharing your time today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Giles. It's been great being on the show.
0: Back to Giles again for my top takeouts. Now, firstly, I think we mostly do take an abundance of food for granted. Yet food security, even in the cities of Australia, is in much greater peril than we perhaps realised. The impact of climate change on our food supply has definitely been felt over the past few years, and if you've been doing online shopping with the major supermarkets, I'm sure that by now you've come to expect all sorts of fresh produce being unpredictable in its availability. But beyond that, the rising cost of living and more food inflation sure to come as the global shortage in wheat and fertiliser hits next year, investing in some hydroponics is looking more and more promising. In many ways, UPG's products fit into the food technology category. They're quite complicated. And like any tech, the more complicated it is, the more support and education is required to deliver an outstanding brand experience. Dilhan and the team are not skimping in that area, having invested in an AI chatbot an onshore dedicated customer care team, and even making home visits to help people get set up. That kind of layered thinking and exemplary service is rare these days, but nevertheless necessary. And I totally applaud them for that commitment. And lastly, Dilhan's example in terms of learning about their avatar is highly instructive in terms of helping you build your own customer profiles. They started out with a demographic-based profile, but quickly realized that didn't fit. Now, their avatars are problem-based. Demographics, especially stuff like age and location, gender, occupation, are largely meaningless for them, and it comes down to the problems people have with predictable and affordable access to food or predictable ability to grow and propagate plants. If your avatars are largely focused on demographic data still, I encourage you to take a fresh look at your own definitions and see if focusing on the customer's goals and challenges leads to a more meaningful orientation for your content and for your marketing. And if you need help with that, we are just about to launch our new online program, which teaches you how to implement our Purpose Marketing Playbook. And there's a whole module in there dedicated to helping you define a problems-based avatar. I'll be back again next week with more stories from the world of sustainable e-commerce. So until then, keep building your brand for a healthier planet.